Band Library Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about books that have been banned or censored or someone took a marker to them and wrote words on them like baloney and toast. People are weird. Places that ban or censor or write baloney and toast in the pages of books are places like libraries, schools, and personal collections of baloney toast enthusiasts. Your normal places where books are found. I may be hungry as I talk to you. Nothing like a fried bologna sandwich is there. Fry that bologna up good and butter up the bread and fry that too. Make you a good lunch. My old Granny Wendy used to make the best fried bologna sandwiches. She'd make her own bread. Her own bologna. Not one for the store, my Granny. She'd just go off into the woods, back behind where, well, wherever they were building a new subdivision. She'd take her box of treats. A couple of days later, she'd come back with fresh bologna. Something else new for me. Like shoes. Or a shirt. Sometimes, they had stains on them. Sometimes, they fit me. Then she'd fry me up a bologna sandwich. And say, you didn't see nothing, son. When they ask, you didn't see no thing. You found that shirt, or them shoes. Eat your sandwich and mind your granny. That leads me into today's book, The Terrorist by Carolyn B. Cooney. It's a book about grief and terrorism, about racism and the evils that mankind does. It's problematic, but then again it starts with a young boy being exploded by a package bomb, so you had that coming if you expected puppies and kittens. We've covered this author before with Face in the Milk Carton, the happy book about familial child abduction. This book is about a child being blowed up, so you know Cooney comes from a happy place. That happy place is known as New England. She was born in 1947 in Geneva, New York, and grew up in Old Greenwich, Connecticut. After growing up, she went to Indiana University, where she practiced murdering hobos for sport, chasing them through the wooded lands and cornfields of the Hoosier State. Okay, that's not true, but don't you kind of wish it was? She honed her skills dealing with people in tremendous pain at Massachusetts General Hospital School of Nursing until around 1967, the same year The Doors put out their first album. That has nothing to do with anything except that a five-second Google search can give you interesting factoids. Here's a few other things that happened in 1967. The 25th Amendment to the United States Constitution was ratified. That's the one that governs presidential succession and disability. 
A military coup takes place in Sierra Leone. In Houston, Texas, boxer Muhammad Ali refused military service and was stripped of his boxing title and barred from professional boxing for three years. And finally, 1967, a worm burst forth from the earth and pronounced itself king of all land under the dreaded sky. Then a bird ate it. All hail the king and his short rule and his sons and daughters who have vowed great vengeance. Learning can be fun. Carolyn B. Cooney decided she wanted to continue learning her books and such and went to the University of Connecticut in 1968. At none of these colleges did she gain a degree. It seems she was unsure of her writing career. She has written over 50 books, so I guess she got over that. And, honestly, it's more than you and me combined will ever write and get published. She likes long walks on the beach where she thinks about writing. Her three children believe she is their mother. Enough about the book mother. Let us turn our forever gaze to the item in question, the 200 or so pages of The Terrorist. Published in 1997 by Scholastic Inc., the book sold copies because that's what books that we hear about that have been published do. We never hear about the books that don't sell copies. Those are forgotten. The book has found its way onto the top banned and challenged books from 2000 to 2009, coming in at a bullet at night 63 on that list. What did it do to get on the list? Well, I'm glad you asked. It hunted hippobos for sport in the wilds of Indiana. Kidding. Two schools objected, yet retained the book, in the year 2000, for the same reason. Blowing up children is wrong. I'm just kidding. That's not why they banned it. They were cool with that. Both Franklin Middle School in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and Rockville schools in Montgomery County, Maryland, disliked the negative Arabic and Islamic religion depictions in the book. FYI, both counties have stuck hard with voting Democrat through Bush, Obama, and Trump. So neither the 9-11 attacks nor the general behavior of the media in the last 18 years have made them assholes. Go them. That's just the counties, though. Their states go back and forth. So yeah, get ready for some interesting depictions of Arabic culture and the Islamic religion all over the place, honestly. Are they the good guys? Are they the bad guys? You won't know until the end of the book, and I'll tell you right now that it's gray. They totally are, though, or at least one of them is, and that's pretty rough. But we shall get there as we do every week, and we shall get there together, you and I. We start with the most unfortunately named child, William Williams, or, as he's known by his family and friends, Billy. 
and he's called that by everyone else. Otherwise, they would have to call him William Williams, which is stupid. That's like naming your kid Frank Franklin, or Peter Peterson, or Whipple Von Kroger Applewhite. Those are all dumb names, and you should know better. Young Billy is a precocious little shit. His family has recently moved to London, and Billy has taken it upon himself to shit America all over the place. He's into making money, either by importing American foods and selling them directly to students, or by attempting to be the wholesaler for the craft company. Our story starts with this little shit on the subway. He's bopping along, thinking about what he needs to be more American in London, and everyone on the subway hates him. I'm sure there's an old man who wants to spit on him, but Cooney just didn't want to describe it. So Billy's riding the subway, talking to some of his friends, and they're on their way to school. When he gets off, his friends run ahead of him, trying to flee before they have to talk to Billy anymore. Then this guy comes up. He says, hey, douchebag, your friend dropped this package. Billy says, gee, thanks, mister, and takes the mysterious package. He catches up to his friends, but neither of them know what the hell is going on, so he keeps the package. Late that night under the full moon, the package begins to move and shake. Billy unwraps it and finds inside a mysterious orb of swirling colors that cracks and produces a dragon. The dragon grows and Billy becomes psychically attached to the creature until it has to fly away, teaching Billy that no matter how much you love something, you must let it go to be free, to be itself. Wait, no, I'm sorry. That's Jeremy Thatcher, Dragon Hatcher by Bruce Cavill. Billy takes the package into the London subway, skirts around some lady with a baby on a stroller, remembers that terrorism is a thing, and blows the fuck up. His last thought is pretty horrific, and then there's no more Billy, and you would think I would feel bad about calling him a shit, but I'm really not. I'm not glad he's dead, don't get me wrong, because he's a fictional character. If he didn't die then we would not have a book, or would have a different book to talk about. So I guess I'm glad he's dead. You don't get to judge me. So from then on out, we get his sisters, his fathers, and his mother's reactions to his death. Most of the story focuses on his sister, Laura. She was a... a girl... I have no idea, honestly. I think she was talking about dates and My Little Pony, or whatever girls in 1997 talked about. Kidding. I'd really just have no clue who anyone, especially Laura, is before this story starts. We get glimpses into this part. She's thinking about boys, about her friends and her dopey brother in London, now she didn't expect to like the city. Her dad 
He gets a moment driving along and imagining how happy the family will be when he gives them Christmas in Moscow rather than going back to their family and friends in the United States. Before the horrific explosion that kills poor little Billy, nothing about the mom except maybe some flashbacks here and there, where she sees Billy as the perfect child, flawed in his genius or something. More on her later, unless I get bored. So we follow Laura, for the most part, or is it Laura? Whatever. If you feel one way or the other, well, just pretend I said the right way. Or if you don't like me, just pretend I said the other way. Time passes and Laura becomes very suspicious, caught up in trying to solve her brother's murder. Was it a classmate? One of the Irish or the Arabs? Or just some random person? She questions all her classmates, interrogating them and alienating them. Her friend Khan tries to talk some sense into poor Laura. Laura won't hear it. The other kids just leave her be with the exception of Jiron. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but I guess that's the way I'm going to say it. I'm going to go with Jiron. Jiron could have been a complex character, had she not become a random mustache-twirling villain by the end. And wow, by the end she grows a good old stash a mile wide and twirls it like an Olympic baton champ on bathtub meth. But who is she, you ask? Well, hold on. So Laura feels shitty now that her brother became a Jackson Pollock painting. She's alienating her friends. And then Jerron says, Hey, why don't you come have a sleepover at my house? Laura doesn't want to go. But Jerron's dad talks to Laura's dad. And her friends say they're going, so she goes. While alone, at the sleepover, Jerron corners Laura and says, I need Billy's passport. See, Jerron spins a hell of a tale to the worldly, ignorant Laura. Jerron's family is all dead and shot by Shiites back home, and they left her lots of money to her and her brother. But her brother, to be able to go back home, is going to marry Jerron off to some old dude. Because Jerron, with her dark complexion and lithe body, looks a lot like Billy. His passport will help her get to New York and escape. With this horrid tale of woe and bullshit, Laura says she will help her new friend, who says she knows the pain of familial loss, what with all her family getting shot. Besides the fact that we actually hear that Laura's dad talks to Jerron's dad. All the other kids are like, Yeah, Jerron hates Americans? So why is she hanging out with Laura? It makes a complex storyline, I'll tell you, but until the last scene. Look, I want to say that Laura figures this whole thing out and confronts her friend Jerron in a climactic confrontation. Nope. Those friends, they spied on Laura buying the tickets for America 
for her in the very dead splatter art that is Billy. And they called the cops. Laura does figure it out, but not until after multiple airport checkpoints and Jerron laughing like a madman and clutching at her designer bag that does not fit the image of the American little boy that she's pretending to be. Let's take a step back and talk about Jerron's plan from what we know in the story. Jerron is a terrorist, loyal to the country that threw her out. She wants to get to New York for some reason, so she got a bodyguard to hand the bomb to Billy. He blows up. Then Jerron can convince Laura to get Billy's passport, so Jerron can get away. From I don't know what. It's not super clear because Laura's dad talks to somebody, like I said. But when the cops raid her house at the end, nobody's there. I don't know. She's a liar and gets away in the end. That's the most we can know and creates a super big problem if you know the current political climate with regards to brown people as dangerous bombers. I'm just saying, if the sassy American girl nobody liked had been the terrorist all along, this might have been a more effective story than bringing about stereotypes that have been kicking around since 1980s action movies, and probably way before then. The moments of this story with impact were the more human moments with the family. There's a heartbreaking scene at Christmas, no, they don't make it to Moscow, I'm sorry, where the mom is breaking down thinking about letting Laura go on a trip that's ultimately a sort of a disguise for her going with Jerron. What if something happens? We can't lose her, too. It's a moment heard behind closed doors, a broken bit of reality. Another is when Laura and her mom go to the butcher. Nicole, the mom, she has to turn away, and Laura knows it's because the butcher will ask about Billy, because the little bastard liked his meat, Extra ground. If you've ever had that moment, even when it wasn't from a death, like from a breakup or something, when you had to avoid someone else bringing up the bullshit that you've had to deal with, and they just got one more time somebody bringing it up, it's draining. Of course, the book kind of ruins the stuff, the good grief by bringing up a cartoonish villain, like I said. We could not just have paranoid Laura suspecting and alienating her friends. She doesn't get to learn the lesson that shit happens in the world. That sometimes people don't get answers to the big questions, like death and destruction and evil. Laura didn't get to learn the big lesson, that the world is random and chaotic, and what you do to get through the day defines you as much as the people you surround yourself with. She doesn't get to learn that part of loving people, having people in your life, is that at some point, not having them. Sometimes for forever. That's part of love, part of being a person on this planet, holding each other and letting each other go. And Laura doesn't get to learn any of that. Because the author kind of dropped the ball with her. She's not a complete character. There's not a lot else going on with her as a person. And we learn little about her, and most importantly, there is a cause to her brother's death 
in the laughing mania of Juran. That someone else orchestrated the whole events of the novel more or less breaks the lessons that could have been learned. Of the whole bunch, maybe her friend Muhammad gets out of the novel the best. He continues to try and befriend and understand Laura. He tries to talk with her, turn her away from the quest of finding Billy's killer. He fails, fails pretty hard, but there's just something nice about a lost cause. This book reminds me, back when I was a boy, I took a camping trip with my uncle. We were out for a month or more. Time gets tangled. When we were set upon by hunters, men out in the land like us, not camping and enjoying nature, but those living there and consuming it living off the land and taking what they wanted. They wanted our supplies, our tents and pots and pans and our bows and arrows. Our plan worked out well. My uncle died under my hand and I joined the hunters. For another month or so, until the cold winds blew, I lived with them, killed with them, raided with them. The men saw me as a brother, right until the day of the first snow, when they slept too long. Then I slit their throats and ran to civilization. One of the guys there, Jeff, he kind of reminded me of Billy. They both liked the Boston Red Sox. Overall, the book is an interesting read. It falls apart near the end, when it seems Cooney decided she needed an ending rather than a good story. For the most part, the best bits are the bits where we see grief and pain and characters dealing with that. The realistic depiction of the helpless father and mother not only ignoring their surviving child, but clutching to each other, is very well done, yet hurt by the ending. Young adult books often need an ending, and this one is more genre than literature. Or maybe it's genre masquerading as literature, or vice versa. That's my English major opinion, anyway. Read it and take in the best bits, but beware the book is beheld by a page count. Don't give it to a kid that has lost someone who wants to learn a little bit about grief, because the book has an easy answer of an easy villain. Pain beyond hope that this book depicts is not so easily solved. Maybe it should be, but it isn't. And that's The Terrorist by Carolyn B. Cooney. For the Band Library Podcast. If you like this episode, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this episode. Maybe go out and tell your friends, be they the butcher or some guys you're camping with. Become a friend of the library over on Patreon and get extra episodes of short stories. Right now, I'm in the middle of looking at Margaret Atwood's Dancing Girls. Check that out at patreon.com slash bandlibrary. B-A-N-N-E-D. Thank you for listening. Stay in. Read a book. Music, Dances and Dames, by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. 
Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Someone is doing lawn maintenance at 12.45 a.m.